0: hi everyone welcome back to tvp this year is our 10th birthday believe it or not not as a podcast but as a value franchise here at schroeder's we wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table usually on the pod we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise but in this mini series called meet the manager our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini-series on the off-weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal, but we hope you enjoy this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Meet the Manager mini-series. Today, we have the tale of two Nicks for you. Our first Nick is our host, Nick Wood. Mr. Wood is the Head of Investment Research at Quilter Cheviot. Before this role, he spent the first 10 years of his career at Capital Group as a Quant Analyst, and then he spent five years as Stanford Associates within the Fund Research team. You'll notice that Mr. Wood is a natural host on the TVP, as he's the host of his own podcast, Fund Buyer, which covers the world of Fund Research. Find it on your favorite podcast platform. Our second to Nick is Nick Kearage, the co-head of the global value team at Schroeders. Mr. Kearage's career started at Schroeders over 20 years ago as a pan-euro researcher before he co-founded the global value team in 2013. In this episode, Mr. Wood and Mr. Kearage will discuss Kearage's journey and the opportunity to run a 50-year-old fund, putting a team together and how to get the best set of people, new emerging themes impacting the value team's process and philosophy, has value investing as a business changed, and finally, the art of telling clients when not to invest in your fund. Enjoy.
1: My name is Nick Wood, Head of Investment Fund Research at Quilt Achieve. And today we are celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the value franchise at Schroder's. And it's my great pleasure to have been after to present today's show. Nick, you and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, we've had many manager meetings and. Um, and today I thought we'd uh, take the theme of change. We're talking about 10 years of the value franchise. So theme of change and, and, and really what's evolved in the, in the last 10 years and, and looking out to what the next 10 years might be. Before we do that, um, I think it will be really interesting for listeners just to hear a little bit about your journey into the investing world and also how you end, ended up wedded to this sort of very distinct part of the world, the, uh, the, the sort of the deep value investing world. Thanks, Nick. It's,
2: it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to see you. We we um we've crossed paths many times, uh, but I haven't seen you for a little while. And it's lovely to see you again and to be here and to be able to chat about this. And you know the ten year anniversary of that. Val- it's funny we talk about the ten year anniversary of the Value Team, but I always think of this as the last ten years because actually, you know, Kevin and I um, have been the greatest part of my time on the team was co-running a, a product with with Kevin in terms of the UK Recovery Fund, which is just had its 50 year anniversary so kind of you know standing on the shoulders of giants somewhat in terms of the value team itself and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit how it's evolved and how it hasn't changed at all but yeah I mean I've I've kind of been at Schroder's now man and boy we were just saying I think it might be 22 years and and how I kind of got into investing because I wasn't I wasn't really going down a path that would naturally lead to investing. I was doing engineering at university and I'm sure I was much more likely to end up in a workshop somewhere in Rolls-Royce rather than rating Rolls-Royce's shares as a buyer or sell for Schroder's. But I think it was something that I'd always been really interested in. I kind of, I caught, at some point I kind of caught my own behaviours at university. There's this kind of apocryphal story about how I took my grant cheque from the university and did the very student thing, which is I, I drank half of it, uh, and then I invested the other half of it in the stock market, and was in all the wrong kinds of investments. I mean, this was the late 1990s, of course, but but kind of was kind of doing strange things like reading the FT and you know stuff that I don't think I realised was a bit strange. But when I looked around, the other engineers weren't doing this, so um, uh, it was a it was a it was a bit odd in that regard. And I was just really really interested by instead of kind of how machines worked, how industries worked and businesses worked interested enough to kind of get off my bum and apply for a couple of internships of which I was lucky enough to get the Schroeder one and in some respects the
1: rest is is history really Hmm. let me you mentioned there when you sort of took over the uh, uh the recovery sleeve and maybe let me take you back there I um I believe you maybe just five years uh, after graduating and you and Kevin are taking on what was a very established franchise. To just take us back to that period, what was it like taking on such a a sort of significant role there? What, What are your memories from that period?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so strange because I think nowadays, you know, for any job that we ask anyone to come in and do, even as a graduate... We we expect this extraordinary CV, this incredibly fully formed narrative about how you've always wanted to do X since you were two years old and how your whole life has been organised around that. And the reality is is that for the vast bulk of people, I suspect who are of my vintage or older, will know that you can create a narrative, but that's not how life works. And in some respects, you don't really know what you want to do and you have to do a lot of things you don't want to do till you work out what you do want to do. And, and actually, it was thus about my investing career because when I came into Schroeder's in well, 2000, my internship, but 2001, I started kind of slightly weird, you know, right around that September 11 period, October 11, you know, um, uh, October 2001, I started Michael Dobson started at the same time, we just sold the investment bank, it felt like a moment of change. And I kind of came in and didn't really have an idea of what kind of investor I wanted to be. And I was a very bad investor in lots of different ways and made all the mistakes that, you know, you would expect a, a young analyst to make. But Actually, you know, people took a took an interest in what I was doing, and it was recognised that I, you know, I had the kind of aptitude, but the keenness to kind of learn. And Kevin and I kind of came together quite quickly around that period, and 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 we were kind of identified as both having that kind of keenness to learn and to get better. And I don't I don't think that's really gone away. I think that's what what is kind of, you know, I don't have any superpowers in terms of individual skills that I'm extraordinary at, but I think both Kevin and I have had this kind of aptitude or desire or hunger to try and get better. And so, uh, you know, as part of that, we were handed this fund where it's pretty extraordinary, really. I mean, these these days, you know, everyone wants 15 years of experience before you give anyone any money. I, I suspect there was a feeling that the UK Recovery Fund, though it was a kind of grand old dame of of the UK fund series... A lot of it was internal money, mm. <laughs> and we'd have to go quite hard to screw it up, right? It's a deep value fund, but but nonetheless, we were absolutely a hoot when we got given that fund to run by by Ben Whitmore, who handed it on to us. And I'm, you know, many people will know this story about we kind of sat down with him, and you know, we were we were eagle eyed, and we had our, our notebooks out, and it's like, how do we run this fund? And he kind of said, I, like, I'm not. I'm going to let you figure this out for yourself, but but I give you I give you the one line I got told when I take on this took on this fund, right? Which is, if you don't have one company going bust on you every year in this fund, you're not taking enough risk. You're not going to generate the performance. Mm. And Kevin and I just didn't really understand how crazy that was because we you know would only been in the in in the industry for five or six years. It was our first fund management opportunity. Um, it was only with hindsight that you realise that that is just not a thing anyone says. People talk about the benchmark, not looking stupid, trying to outperform. You know, clawing for small performance relative. Nobody says that, and and actually, it was one of the kind of most influential and informative things anyone ever said to us, and set us up in terms of the, the philosophy and the approach that we had to you know trying to generate performance for clients. Mm.
1: Yeah, no, I'd agree. I, I can't remember another manager saying that. Uh, but I guess the rest is history, really. So when when I'm looking at uh, the value franchise as a whole and doing doing my analysis, I guess a, a team for me is is absolutely uh, key in terms of my conviction. Tell us how you went about setting up the team in 2013 value franchise. What what, what were you thinking?
2: Well, yeah, it's interesting because the kind of, and this is where the kind of legend versus the reality of what actually went on. So, I mean, there'd always been a kind of very kind of value thread or theme that ran through part of the old Schroeder UK Equity Department, which had been a kind of, you know, a very big deal back into the kind of 1990s and the Jim Cox days and the Enterprise Fund and all these kind of funds that have gone down in history. But there was a kind of approach, but it had been quite weather-beaten by you know, that period at the end of the 1990s and early 2000s, before we then saw it kind of come back. And so, you know, at the time, there was a kind of hardcore of of kind of investors who, you know, who, who will be household names to many people who follow value in the UK. So the Nick Purvis and the the kind of uh, Ben Whitmores of this world, who we're still in good contact, in close contact with. And you know, they that was starting. They were starting to kind of move on and do different things, different projects themselves, and and kind of Kevin and I were slightly seen, I guess, as the kind of the next vanguard of that approach. We had learned a huge amount from those two particular investors. We had taken on the recovery fund in two thousand six, and when and and Ben had left, and when Nick left in two thousand ten, we took on the income franchise, and we had this kind of what was a a wonderful and. Mature but legacy UK value uh, franchise at that time, and Kevin and I were really excited about the thought of you know we'd seen you and how few people come back to that old line about you know companies going bust on you. Nobody was doing that, and it wasn't just they weren't doing that in the UK; they weren't doing that anywhere. And so we were very excited about this idea of trying to do it on a global stage and launch a global recovery fund. You know, and a part of that period between 2010 and 2013 was us was us bringing that fund to fruition. They say that the only two things you get to really control as a fund manager is one, picking your benchmark and two, picking your start date. We managed to pick the start date at the beginning of what would turn out to be pretty much the worst 10 years for value in its entire history. So we uh, uh, once again confirmed that market timing is not one of our skills, but it was a kind of opportunity to kind of branch out. And, and as part of that, we brought along with us someone who we thought was a very talented investor who, again, had been an analyst in the UK team, but was kind of ready to take on a broader role. And that was Andrew Liddon. And, and Andrew's gone on to become still, you know, an absolute core part of our franchise and a very important person for us. We also looked across the floor and, and we were given a kind of wider remit. It was a huge stroke of f- good fortune, and 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 you can be as hardworking or, or or conscientious or you know whatever you like, but the truth is, we all need a bit of luck. And our bit of luck was that. In 2013, Peter Harrison came in to join Schroder's as then head of equities, and he believed in value. Um, In fact, it was he who had recruited our previous boss, Nick Purvis, to join him and take his value skills to go and work for RWC. And so we had in that kind of we had in that individual, someone who really believed in the approach, wanted us to develop it further and develop a franchise, a style based franchise at Schroders. And so we did that in 2013. We brought together a couple of other investors who were sat kind of on their own doing value, Ian Kelly and Jamie Lowry. Uh, One was running, Jamie was running a European value fund, and Ian was running a global value fund, our global income fund. And we kind of brought them together to create this, um, the team, the core of which is, you know, that Ian and Jamie have, have moved on to go and live up north. I couldn't, couldn't compete with that being close to their families there was nothing we could do about that but that core and that ethic and I think if if you've got Ian and Jamie here today and we still speak to them they would say that the team
1: still looks very like it does in terms of philosophy and approach back there so maybe Talk a bit. We, we've talked many times about sort of some of the behavioural side. Uh, I know you're really interested in getting the the very best out of a, an investment team. I just wondered how you've sort of developed and improved these elements, and you know, have you have you had any learnings over time, in just how to how best to run an investment team, how to get the best out of uh, uh, a group of people who are all focused on you know that that end result.
2: Well, I, I think the question we're constantly asking ourselves is, are we getting the best out of people? And 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 the truth is, is that there's no kind of it's never, it's, it's a cake that's never baked. Um, you know, just as it looks like, you have you know, it, it's kind of wonderful and it smells great and it looks like it's, it. suddenly it seems to just, you know, one side of it flops down a bit. And, you know, the souffle is going down you think, what am I doing? I've got, to, I've got to kind of work on that. And so you've got to kind of constantly try and be on top of that. And I would say that there's never a moment where we think we've done that or everybody's happy. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about is how do we, you know, disagree agreeably. What's that? How do we how do we make sure there's creative conflict in the team? But creative conflict can be conflict, so you've got to kind of you've got to try and constantly work at that. I suppose there are elements that are very very important that you have to kind of guard continuously. So, independence, I think, independence of of thought, both within the team but also outside of the team. You know, we're extremely well supported, and one of the things that we have at Schroders, that I think, is is isn't, isn't unique, but it's It's in some, it's very special and you hardly see it anywhere as a kind of boutique mindset, but within a big investment firm that can support us. So, you know, there are lots of kind of value boutiques that are out there, but the problem is they kind of come and go. They're subject to enormous commercial pressures. Um, They feel that they become very short term. They're very, very short term performance led. We're very lucky in that we work for a bigger firm and we're probably one of the biggest value boutiques in Europe if you want to see it that way. But we have a parent company that has been doing this and just have the experience to be able to kind of ride out, you know, 2020 was apocalyptically bad in terms of relative value performance over a short period of time. Now, we don't look at that. Our clients tend not to look at that. But uh, when you're running a large commercial enterprise, which Schroder's is, You know, you would imagine our bosses do look at that, but at no point does anyone pull us into a room and go, you know, could you start buying some tech stocks or whatever? And I think that's very, very special and is the kind of, you know, the opportunity for us to be, we're supported, we're invested in. One of the things that's really interesting about the last 10 years is if you look at the number of people in our team, it's more than doubled, despite it having been the worst 10 years for value, because I think you know, our business, whenever I go to them and say, now's the time to invest in this, Mm. exactly when no one else is doing it, because this is enduring and they kind of say yes. Mm. So independence, yes, but also kind of resource. And, you know, I think those two things are important. And then a third thing that I think is absolutely essential, which we touched on in the opening bit, is is a kind of paranoia about needing to get better, Mm. about needing to grow and develop, constantly kind of asking yourself, you know, what what do I do that I should never change? Because it's absolutely core to the principles and philosophy of what we're doing. You know, what is it that we actually do that adds value? And we ask that a lot. And then what is up for constant evolution? You know, What do we need to be trying and evolving? And I think when you go through it and you look at our investment process for example you know and process can be quite dry so I don't necessarily want to spend all my time talking about that but but one of the things that underpins it is philosophically I think you would say you know if you've got a Nick Purvis in here uh, or you've got a Jamie lowry in here who aren't with the team anymore they would fundamentally recognize pretty much everything that's going on and it would feel you know like a kind of nice warm coat but if they looked at how we were doing it, the day-to-day, the kind of modelling, the OTM, the seven red questions, the discipline, the rigour, the kind of how we've evolved that into a kind of, um, the tools that we use and how we think about it, all of that would look kind of new to them. Yeah, they'd recognise a p and a balance sheet and a cash flow, but they'd kind of say, well, why do you do it that way? And why does everyone use the same thing? And how do you share that and stuff? And I think that's the power is, you know, so constantly learning and evolving. I, I would say those are all elements that are, really intrinsic to great teams over time and,
1: and and we want to be a great team because that's what our clients deserve mm. and maybe picking up on that sort of theme of of evolution and i guess uh, you know as you say, know, 50 years doing uh doing this one uh, one thing but you know lots of changes in our industry constantly evolving you might think about big data esg is a, a factor that we weren't thinking about 10 years ago uh, in the most part um Uh, even AI that's uh, that will uh, take all of our jobs right Um, uh, how how many of those sort of broad themes have any of those themes impacted how you uh, moving from the team more to the the process and philosophy of any of those particularly um, sort of tweak the process shall we say all of those Mm -hmm.
2: I mean I think you put some great stuff there I think I think big data first Uh, like there's a there's a, you know, there's a couple of people in our team who are really progressive about this. You know, Andy Evans I'd kind of signal out as being extremely thoughtful. You know, we've got people on our team like Andy who uh, they don't wait to get told you should think about this. They just teach themselves Python on the train on the way home and mm. then start coding and thinking about big data. And 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 I think, you know, there's there's a there's a part of me that recognizes that, yeah, Ben Graham was doing this by using a pencil and a piece of paper and not a calculator. And 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 at its core, what we're doing here philosophically is behavioural. So I think we can always do it that way. But if you want to be a great investor, I think the days of being able to do it with a piece of paper and a pencil, I think you're leaving performance on the table there. So mm-hmm. thinking about how we use the data, whether that's in our screening, whether or not that's particularly in the base rate tool that Andy's champion and driven, where we're trying to look at, OK, when I'm thinking about these margins, rather than just Why, is old head, those margins look about right? What's my evidence for that? What's the group of companies I'm going to use? How do I pull them in and look at the average margins? Oh, wow, average margins for those 20 companies I think are the industry have been coming down over the last 10 years. What does that mean? What should I do with my normalized numbers? So big data, really, really important and a key part of what we've been doing. I think ESG has become this, I mean, even for us as a team, it's a not divisive but contentious issue the extent to which you know some of these factors are ethically important for us to take a, 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 a understand our role in the capital chain and that just saying our clients don't ask us to do that well some of them don't and we ultimately it's not our money we do what our clients ask us to do but a lot of them do want us to take a view they do want us to do better our industry is responsible for trillions and trillions of pounds worth of capital. Our influence is absolutely, you know, uh, kind of crucial in terms of what we, you know, driving where investment goes, and I think making sure that we are the right side of history in that regard. And, And I know some people on our team who would kind of, you know, squint as I say that, but I don't mean this in a kind of manipulating. I just mean as in trying to do what we think is in the right interests of our clients in the long term whilst at the same time recognising they've invested with us for performance. And let's be clear about this. There are times where those two things conflict. Do you make more money if you're BP by investing in an oil well or a solar farm? In an oil well. You do today. And so there there is a driver there about how we balance that up. And it's, uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult. It's not straightforward. It's not black and white. And that's very, very hard, but it's really, really important. I think your thing about AI is, is really interesting. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not skilled or educated enough, despite how all I read to, to really opine on that, but I think it will change things. And I think we need to think very closely about that. So look, at, at the end of the day, we need to recognise that we have a set of skills, we believe. We have an environment that allows us to do something in a very specific way, but we also have to understand that it's our client's money. They come to us, they ask us to do it. If they ask us to do it in a specific way, we need to understand. You know, one It's our right to say we can't do it in that way with those limitations or with those specifications, but quite often we can, and it's a privilege to do that for them. Mm.
1: I'll I, I pick up on that. So, I mean very interesting to 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 hear how how things have changed. Uh, one thing you said earlier was you know you you hadn't been forced into uh technology stocks at the point of uh, most pain for value managers. Uh, my experience I think has been more more value managers have been tempted that way and uh, which is quite interesting particularly in the US. Uh what what is it about your process that keeps you so steadfastly you know uh, not tempted into some of those particular situations you've mentioned the corporate culture but uh uh, is there anything you particularly highlight that that um we you absolutely uh can't change in terms of the process
2: well i i think i think i think there's an element here of of you know there's a there's a tenor that's kind of created across the team there's a kind of attitude from the very top uh say top down there's not we have a very flat hierarchy, but if you look at the oldest people there, so Kevin's the, the oldest person in terms of the team. You know, he's one year more than me um, at Schroeder's and he loves reminding me of that, and rightly so. And he he kind of is, you know, he sets this. There is a kind of unshakable uh, belief in in kind of contrarianism and in doing what we think he thinks is the right thing, and I think that's something that you know, it's the way I feel, it's the way an Andrew Lydon feels. I mean, we've got some pretty senior investors here. I mean, despite having doubled the number of people on the team, and despite finally having some people on our team who might understand what the hell the metaverse is, because they're young enough, our average investment experience age is, is 16 and a half, nearly 17 years. So, you know, people are established, but from, you know, the the entire, the kind of all the way through the team, there is this streak of kind of contrarianism in terms of not wanting to, it's kind of innate, it's natural, not wanting to be told what to do. But I think also we recognise that we're humans. You can see it. People are shorter. They're more, you know, our behaviours do change when performance is particularly bad, because we care about what we do. We really care. And we also you know, we, we understand that there are certain things we can and can't do to affect performance, particularly in the short term. But where performance in the short term creeps into longer periods and it can do with value, it's very lumpy. We've seen three-year periods that go negative or, or longer. Um, that can be hard. I think we do everything that we can to reinforce. Uh, you know, bringing the team together was our attempt in 2013 to bring people who are isolated and, and doing value but into an environment where it was okay to be different. It was okay to take a longer investment horizon. You know, a five-year investment horizon, which is our investment horizon typically in these products, was very normal 20 years ago. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of uh, majority of funds, but it was mm. still very normal. These days, it, it seems impossibly long <laughs> versus the kind of quarterly time periods that people talk about. And so bringing everyone together in an environment where there is a certain amount of camaraderie. Around that, there's a kind of confidence. Where it's kind of self-reinforcing. Mm. Not every fund is the same. Not all the stocks are the same, but broadly, what you find is when values is having a very tough time. Of course, all of us are, tend to be having a very tough time, and and so that is quite reinforcing. And it's the same, you know, in my role as the kind of head of team, insulating the team and making sure that people feel comfortable and confident. That you know, frankly, I don't get a lot of pressure from the wider business. But if they're, you know, whenever there is concerns, I make sure there's I make sure there's huge uh open lines of communication with the business. So it's very transparent what we're doing and they understand us and there's no miscommunication. Mm. And I think all of that helps to reinforce an environment in which we can be uh, appropriately differentiated as
1: contrarian as our clients need us to be. Mm. So let's turn to mistakes then. Uh every mm. fund manager makes them um What stands out in the last ten years? What what learnings might you have from them? And and actually, have you have you lived up to Ben Whitmore's uh, uh, one company going bust a year? I'm not I'm not sure you have. I don't. uh... You know what? I'm
2: really. I actually that's the bit that gets me nervous (laughs) is that we're not. As, (laughs) As you, I often talk about. You know, when people come into this industry, they get very nervous that they don't know anything, and I think. And I say to people, um, you know, there's a lady who's joined our team, um, Charlotte Smith, very impressive, very sharp, comes through as a graduate scheme and she's, she's joining our team. We're delighted about that. And I kind, of, I, I kind of try and reinforce this line about, you know, ignorance is a superpower. Because the problem with investing is once you know a bit, you think you know a lot. A lot. And stuff that is quite anecdotal gets embedded and becomes assumed wisdom. And you never ask the questions, why do I do that? Why does that company do that? you know, how, how objective can I be about British Telecom, a business I've seen for 20 years has, you know, changed its spots a few times, but it's just British Telecom to me, right? Whereas the first time you see that business, it could be anything to you. And that is very powerful. So that ability to kind of, you know, learn and not become, you know, and I do worry a little bit that as we do that, you know, Kevin or I, we slightly lose our ability to be as wild and naive and take the risks. I mean, we push ourselves pretty hard on that. And I think if you went and looked at, this is an example, the UK recovery portfolio, you'd see a number of stocks, um, you know, I'm I'm slightly maligned for my old thing about when you look at our income fund, you should feel a bit uneasy. And when you look at our recovery fund, you should feel really queasy. Mm. And that's the point about it, you should, you know, and and I think there are lots of potential mistakes, but our mistakes are also the ones that could be our greatest victories. And that's very difficult. Mm. But to answer your point kind of directly, I mean, there's there's tons and tons of mistakes. Continue to do things like, you know, catch myself doing things like, oh, we'll wait a bit longer for that, you know, because, it you know, we're always too early in these stocks. No, treat the valuation as it is. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. There could be a bid tomorrow for the business opportunistically because someone thinks it's too cheap. You know, so don't try and market time. I think more specifically, there are great examples where, you know, if you looked at things like, and this is probably a bit geeky, but I was looking the other day at the Tesco results, and you know the way that that balance sheet has changed because now we recognise leases are a, you know, a form of debt that's on the balance sheet, and and we always adjusted for that and thought about that, but you know, we didn't treat it as kind of straight debt. And now, if you look at those companies, it's just accepted wisdom in general retail that leases are debt, and actually their balance sheets are night and day versus where they were five or six years ago, and and it's just not going back, and actually that was probably a mistake to not think about it that way. You know, we were making an adjustment where we weren't bold enough. I think there are kind of lots of technical factors like that that kind of go on. I think, you know, it's it's one of the things we do with all our stocks is we do a post-mortem where we look back and, and once we've sold it or it's gone to zero, if it's one of our, our failures, um, or even if it's, you know, done well. But whatever has happened, once it's out, we look back and kind of ask ourselves, do we make the right decision? Because I think one of the most dangerous things in investing is you know and it's one of the the questions we ask interviewees when they come to our team this is a bit bad i'm not mm-hmm. sure i'm going to be able to ask an interviewee this anymore now is you know if i bought a stock and then a year later it's gone to zero did i do the right thing or the wrong thing and it's you know it's just so tempting to say you know you know it's a trick question but can i really have done the right thing it went to zero it's like you're the worst person at your job in the world But the the, the reality is you you don't know, right? What we do is a probabilistic thing. If I buy a certain stock 100 times and I make money 60 times out of 100, I am a legend in investing terms, okay? It is, you know, the the difference between luck and skill and investing is is very, very tight. And so what we need to understand is if I made that same decision about that investment 100 times, would I make money 60? And how much money would I make? Mm. And that's the kind of thing here. So... Going through. And, and the other side works too, which is you can make a ton of money. And we sometimes look back and go, wow, we made three three times our money in that stock. And we should never, ever do that again. That, I mean, we should just never, because we got lucky. You know, actually, that's not a 60 out of 100. It's a 40, but it came up heads for us. So fine, but don't do it again. And I think learning lessons, come back to learning, learning, learning. If there's one thing I kind of repeat over and over it's about that that kind of learning so there's something to be learned from everything just be careful the
1: lessons you learn from everything good advice let's let's talk a bit about the value environment and i i, I was at the london value investors uh, conference a couple of weeks ago and it was a fascinating discussion by the the us value investor uh, david einhorn he was talking about value's changed forever value investing changed forever he no longer has the the large mutual funds with inflows buying stocks off him and actually passive's on the rise and and you buy into a passive investment and you're buying into the things that have done done best and and they are often higher growth names and that's the US uh, i wonder how you see value investing today is, is there something that's fundamentally changed in your perception um, is this threat or opportunity? Well, what's t- talk a bit about the environment over over the long term and and, and how that has, has changed for you?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a kind of reasonably enormous box you've kind of lifted the lid on on there <laughs> in terms of how we think about that. Nick, I, I look, I, I I'd separate a couple of things. One is about fundamental value investing and and whether or not that's going away and the approach and the philosophy. And then the other is about how our industry is changing and where the, where the flows are coming from and how clients are investing and so on and so forth. And they're, they're slightly different, I'd say. I mean, fundamentally, at its heart, uh, there's been this great debate about value investing over the last kind of 10 years about, well, what is value? You know, is it Buffett value? Is it Graham value? Is it Einhorn value? Is it you know, which metrics? Is it free cash flow yield? Is it average K? You know, whatever and And actually, I just think it kind of misses the point, which is at its heart value investing is basically behavioral right it it exists because humans are irrational and they get really, really scared and come back to one stock going bust on you every year. There's not a chance a fund manager wants to talk about stock that's gone- by. i mean Kevin and I have had our, our names on the front of the Financial Times a couple of times being, you know, Nick, Nick, Nick Kirridge and Kevin Murphy, largest holders of now insolvent blacks' leisure. And that doesn't feel like a great moment in some regards, even where you understand it's part of the process. And so, you know, people don't want to do that. And so, when a stock starts to fall, you know, the whole concept of a stop loss, get out, don't want to look silly. And, and I think that will always exist. Um, yeah how that manifests high frequency trading liquidity volumes markets you know all of that is kind of up for debate but humans are going to be humans i mean it's the one thing i'd almost you know i have bet my career on and i would i would continue to do that and that is an opportunity but in terms of you know clients accessing that there's a couple of things here i mean one i would say that historically being very honest about it you know if you've seen those charts of The S&P 500 returns over 50 years, and then the S&P 500 mutual fund returns over 50 years, which is basically that return minus fees on average. There are great managers within there. And then the average investment experience of an investor in those funds is like 2% less because clients buy and sell at the wrong moments because... Because behavioural, again, you know, and actually part of what we're doing here is ensuring that our clients come with us on the journey so that they can realise the benefits we know are inherent in those inefficiencies in the stock market. So I consider part of our role to be being very transparent with our clients, being very open and communicative and straightforward with them we we never claim to be anything we're not we always highlight the volatility and lumpiness of the returns but we also highlight the incredible long-term returns and so in being honest with that way we end up with clients coming with us and not selling at the wrong times and buying at the wrong times and that tends to be good but to david einhorn's point is the industry changing i think it is i think you know actually mutual funds are less attractive than they once were for lots of reasons. I think our industry, you know, and I've kind of said this before the active management industry's greatest strength, single greatest uh, tool in its arsenal against passive is ultimately that we can do everything bespoke. Passive's Achilles heel is you must have it in one flavor and we can do it any way you want. Now, do we as an industry do that? Not predominantly, we wrap it up like a mutual fund and make you buy it in one flavor, and I think that will change, and I think we will all move to doing things and I think that's the client's benefit because actually clients will get a a more tailored and more bespoke um, portfolio that better reflects the way they want their money mani- money managed. That is not a straightforward and simple thing to deliver in the short term it's complex it has risk challenges with it you also have to be very honest with yourself about when you can't do it because clients can ask for things which seems reasonable but i can ask for anything if i don't know how it you know is put together so we've got to be very honest about when we can't do things too and i think our industry is evolving to kind of cater for that and i think things are changing but it's yeah I, i don't know exactly what the future will bring but i think it's something we're alive to at the end of the day um, we serve at the pleasure of our clients and we need to make sure that the funds that we're delivering the performance that we can but in a way
1: that that works for them mm. yeah no, it'd be interesting to see how that how that develops Absolutely. and i guess i mean ultimately that requires the client to know exactly what they want so that's uh, that's one thing i guess one thing i will pick up that you said i mean you you in in our various meetings over the years one thing i i've always noticed is you know you're definitely willing to uh to tell me when we should buy more of the fund but equally um it is a, a rare trait to uh to say well actually you know this isn't such a good time to buy and and um i wish there were there were more managers out there like that because i think i think there is the most difficult thing sat in my shoes and my analyst shoes is um okay you know this uh this particular investment has gone up, and 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 you want to buy more of it, and it's exactly the opposite. It's being advised, you know, when 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 is when is enough, when this looks uh, less attractive. So we always appreciate sort of the honesty, and I, and I think that it would be helpful to the industry as a whole if we had a bit more of that. To be perfectly honest,
2: I think it's it's very it's very I mean it's very difficult because it is very nice when people invest money with you because mm. in some respects it's a validation of what mm. you do, right? Mm. Somebody wants to give you money to do the thing you do every day that you're proud of, that, you're, mm. um, that, that you think you're okay at, otherwise you would stop doing it, and, and, and that's a lovely validation. But um, unfortunately our industry is set up so that the time people probably want to do that is the time that's not always in their best interest. Mm. I actually think we're in an interesting point in in the kind of history of value in that we've normally what tends to happen is you get a lot of the performance up front, and then yeah you know, people get very excited by that and they come in and then they get the disappointment actually because the depth of what we've been through for value has been so bad we've seen a bit of a bump and actually people have suddenly thought well that's kind of interesting again and actually I don't think we're done I think over the longer term there's a, there's a lot of performance to kind of recapture there so it's kind of exciting and and and, and actually we do ultimately ultimately performance is what matters most to us and performance to for the people who are already in our products matters most to us, but that needs to be traded off against the fact that we want to we want to have an effect on people's lives in terms of their savings, their you know people to retire earlier, for their kids to you know go to the school they want to go to, or you know, do whatever they want to do with this money. But we want it to actually change their lives to drive outcomes. You know, you've only got to look at. How low the investment amounts are in DC pension pots to know how hard those pension pots need to to run in terms of performance to give people the retirements they deserve, and so we want people to be invested in the funds. So there is a kind of constant thing where I'm, you know, we're sat there saying, you know, it would be great if more people were investing in the products because we think they're good products and they're actually going to compound for people over time. But there are definitely better and worse times, and and to invest in the in in any product and one thing kevin and i said a long time ago was at the end of the day we'll be judged over an investment career based on one our perf- long-term performance track record not the amount of money we ran and two uh, our honesty
1: with our clients mm-hmm. whether or not we told it the way it was and we've we've stuck to both those two things yeah so just thinking again about that sort of long-term perspective i i guess you know may, many value investors have uh, suggested you know we we're on the cusp of a an extended period of value being in vogue across numerous years. And, uh, you know, we've had a couple of years of that. And then guess what? AI came along and and suddenly the only thing you want to own is NVIDIA and and so on. And, and, uh, you know, value managers have uh, had a tricky time here today. What are your thoughts? You know, are we, might there be a period of extended outperformance or or are we now looking at sort of, you know, one year on, one year off, you might say, in terms of, uh, uh styles. Is it are we should we be thinking more about balancing portfolios and having, you know, going finding the best stock pickers?
2: Yeah, I, I mean it's uh it's frighteningly difficult. I mean I do think some of the kind of imbalances. I mean I'm a UK fund manager by kind of original trade. I've been on global funds for a long time, but my kind of heritage is the UK and I remember looking at the UK and thinking, well it'll never, you know, going global, you hear global managers talking about the concentration of this or that, and you think, I mean, please, you know, in the UK stock market, you know, 20 companies are two thirds of the dividends, you know, the, the concentration is like the biggest 10 is enormous, all the rest of it. But actually, that was completely wrong. Another way in which I'm totally wrong continuously. You know, if you look at what's happening globally now, the concentration of those mega cap stocks, and there's a lot of kind of commentary on it at the moment. If you if you strip out some of those kind of whichever it is, fan mang or mang fang or, or whichever way you want to put it, but you take them out, actually the SP five hundred is is not roaring away mm-hmm. year to date. Um, that concentration risk. Um, whether or not it 's dollar concentration stock concentration sector concentration is has been has been a enormous thorn in the side of different you know of diversified investors. you know we all know that historically the equal weight portfolio outperforms, but it just hasn 't been and and that makes it very very difficult, particularly as kind of contrarian investors it 's not really our great skill set to try and identify whether or not great growth stocks. You know, tall trees grow to the sky. I, I I have my own thoughts on that, but I think it it does mean that we are currently we you know those concentration risks haven't gone away, and they do create the potential for these swings. I think I come back to it: the harder it is to do it, the more likely there is to be money to be made. I mean, there is a direct correlation mm-hmm. here. It's just if it was super super easy. To make money lots of people would have gone and done it and if it was just in buying the 10 stocks that make you sleep well at night and feel good well you know it, it, that's just not the way the world works and, I, and i've talked about this before you know like all the things that are really uh valuable are really hard work you know if you want to stay healthy you can't eat the things that taste amazing and you you know you've got to go and do exercise which can be really frustrating and painful so it's like that in investing and so i personally believe you know actually um the returns Will eventually reflect the difficulty of going against the crowd on that kind of trade. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm going to finish with one more uh, question, and really to pick your brains in terms of the pearls of wisdom you've picked up in in your career. Is, is there anything that particularly stands out? Uh, a piece of advice or uh, something uh, you you live by on a day to day basis that, that stood you in um, uh, in good stead? Something that uh, you'd pull out? I don't
2: really. So. This is going to be, this is going to sound really, really weird, but I, d- I don't have a, a mantra at work, but a couple of, five years ago, when my kids started going to school, a little over five years ago, and I and I was very worried that, you know, I was sending these kids off to school and I didn't know what to say to them. And I needed something that like was simple, that was repeatable, that was a mantra I could send them with that kind of summed up what I, I and my wife hoped they would be when they kind of, you know, th- 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 what the experience of school would be for them. And I settled on learn lots, have fun, be kind. And I think, actually, as a thing, as I think about it, that kind of works for me too with a kind of career. Um, It's a small world and it's a very small industry. Don't stamp on people. You don't know, you know, that's that's a bad idea. And actually it's just you get a lot more out of people where they want to work with you, they trust you, they respect you. Um, That doesn't mean everyone's right and you have to put up with things that you think are, are wrong, but it's just as a kind of way of living. I think learning, developing, just try and get a bit better, try and develop yourself. It doesn't always have to be a process. It might be in many different ways, but kind of embrace that kind of Enjoyment of trying to kind of develop yourself in whatever that means for you, however that is for you, and you know trying to we spend a lot of our time working. I probably spend more time working now than I ever have um, and and I have to be very kind of careful about letting that tip over so I keep my kind of keep my boundaries because work can be all consuming but I, I do have a lot of fun and I work with people I think who have fun. And I think work is at its best when it is enjoyable to be doing something together for the benefit of your clients
1: and being good at it over time um, is very rewarding. So maybe that. Fantastic. I think that's a a brilliant way to to finish this interview. So, well, thank you so much for allowing me to uh, pre- present today's um, uh, podcast. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a pleasure as ever and, and good luck for the next 10 years. Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks for your questions and, and for all your support.